Welcome to SimonCast, the official podcast of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. I'm John Shaw, the director of the Institute. In SimonCast, we aim to keep the legacy of Paul Simon alive and well through wide-ranging civil conversations. Today, we're really delighted to have a conversation with Doug Wilson, who is one of the leading Lincoln scholars really in the world. Doug has just done amazing work uh, in the world of of Lincoln and Jefferson as well. Um, Doug is a native of Nebraska, attended Doan College in Nebraska, uh, is an undergrad, studied English, has a master's and doctorate in English from the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, taught at Knox College for many, many years at 33, uh, spent many years also as director of the library at Knox. Um, he's also been um, the um, co-founder and co-director of the Lincoln Studies Center at Knox. We'll talk about that in a bit. And then also in the course of his career, he has been the founding director of the Robert H. Smith International Center for Jefferson Studies at the Thomas Jefferson Foundation in Charlottesville. Um, Doug has twice won a really prestigious award called the Lincoln Award for the best books, uh, the best Lincoln book in that in a given year. And he's also done some really interesting projects related to Lincoln. Uh, he uh, was a consultant with Steven Spielberg's film on Lincoln. He's been a consultant to Span on their uh, series on the Lincoln-Douglas debates. He's done some consulting as well for PBS. Um, We are going to talk today primarily about two of Doug's amazing books. The first one is called Honor's Voice, uh, which talks in general terms about the character of of Abraham Lincoln. And then we're going to do his uh, second book, Lincoln's Sword, which focuses on Lincoln's writing. And if time permits, we may spend a few minutes talking about a remarkable essay that Doug wrote about 30 years ago that was a cover story in Atlantic. Uh, called What Jefferson and Lincoln Read, which is just a wonderfully interesting comparative lens on Lincoln and Jefferson. Um, let me just say, finally, on a personal note, I, I, I knew Doug when I was a student at Knox many years ago. Uh, he was director of the library then, and I would see him around and chatted some. Um, I've since seen him a number of times when I've been on campus in Galesburg, and also he's given some really wonderful talks in Washington, D.C. When I was living there, I attended those. I remember one, particularly at the Library of Congress, which uh, included a tour of some of the, the, uh, the, the part of the library that Jefferson had donated to the Library of Congress. So Doug is joining us from Galesburg, Illinois, and it's great to see you again, Doug. Hi, Jack. Well, Doug, tell us a little bit about your journey to to Abraham Lincoln. Um, Not every English professor becomes a a world-renowned expert on on Lincoln. How did you get pulled into the Lincoln story? I'll try to give you a short version of that. Uh, I was interested in... uh, the idea of, of, well, rural American writers. I was interested in uh, rural life and I knew that we had a great tradition of rural life in America, that it was very important. Uh, Even though it was disappearing, you you could still see uh, it's in our advertising. At the time I got started, Marlboro cigarettes always had these guys out of doors riding horses around and so forth. Um, And Um, I worked on that for quite a while, and I realized that eventually I would have to deal with Jefferson, who is the guy who really put forth the idea that the ideal existence is a rural existence. And this is what America had in his day. Ninety-some percent of Americans were farmers. So I started studying that 
aspect of Jefferson, and I got into his education. Um, he had a terrific education for the times, including college, William and Mary. And uh, I wrote about his library, uh, about his education, about certain themes um, that I picked up on. And then I had the idea of writing about his formative reading, because he he's supposed to have read all of the books in his father's library by the time he was five. Um, and that's family tradition. So if you allow for error, even if he'd read all the books of his father's library by the time he was 10, it would be sensational. And uh, at any rate, this remarkable early reading, and that clearly shaped his basic ideas, gave him the uh, very, he became very much influenced by people like Voltaire, uh, 18th century, people who were talking about freedom and democracy. Um, and people's rights, people had natural rights. And uh, so I wanted, I when I used to teach fiction, I used to like to teach two stories at a time because any two stories you pick are gonna be done differently. And the difference is you have this in this story, it's very important, but it doesn't, that technique doesn't appear in the other. So I was looking for somebody to compare him with. And I wanted somebody who had a similar situation where in, in childhood, he was a, a, a reader and that this formative reading was important. And of course, who better than Abraham Lincoln? What a better, how could you get a better contrast from Jefferson who had all the advantages in life and including a college education and Lincoln who only had a few months in school and he did the rest himself. So that's what was in that uh, article that you talked about in the Atlantic. Um, and to, to, to get all the information about Lincoln's early life, you have to go to, um, there's nothing like this in, in Jefferson studies. Jefferson scholars would kill for the kind of stuff that Lincoln scholars had because his law partner went around interviewing people who knew him when he was young. And um, even people that knew him when he went to Indiana and people that knew him as a child. Um, there's nothing like that for Jefferson. Nothing at all, nothing remotely. In fact, I mean, he's the first person who ever had that kind of stuff saved. What I discovered is that this was terrific stuff for my purposes, but the Lincoln field, Lincoln scholars um, were down on that stuff because it was done by Herndon. And Herndon was in the doghouse because of various things that he had done and said, which they didn't like. And which they, they were making the case that if history wants to be a respectable field, you've got to ignore stuff that's 30 years old by people who are themselves elderly now. And this, the human memory isn't good enough to rely on stuff like this. So they had agreed for uh, all the time it was available, the Library of Congress, to sort of overlook this stuff because it wasn't reliable. But what I, the point I made was, look, this is all we got. If you wanna throw this stuff away, you're crazy because they all use it. 
they use the stuff that they want and the other stuff that they don't like, they say, oh, well, you can't use stuff like that. So that got me into the Lincoln field with an argument to make with the, uh, with the existing scholarship. Um, and what my colleague, my teaching and research partner, Rod Davis and I decided to do was to simply edit all of this stuff. It's a lot of stuff. Most of it's never been worked with. You have no reliable additions or um, look into the people who created it. And so uh, I had to change horses in midstream and go over to Jeff Lincoln Scholarship. And, uh, but this work that we were doing is, uh, it couldn't have, Honest Voice couldn't have been written if I hadn't got my partner uh, to help me because this is a huge task. But when we finally got it done, it was a big fat 750 page book with all kinds of new stuff in it about Lincoln. And we thought this is a reference book. People will want a good big index to go and look for their topic. What we discovered was people were reading it from cover to cover like a novel. Um, and the Lincoln Field has, unlike most other uh, serious American historical fields, a huge following for Lincoln and people who were simply interested in Lincoln. And they read all the Lincoln books that come out. So um, it isn't just a conversation among a bunch of specialists. Um, and so a book like Honor's Voice becomes possible. Uh, you can write a book that has, it's for generally uh, interested people, um, and, uh, but it's, it's a scholarly book. Well, Doug, let's, let's shift into Honor's Voice, because one of the points you make at the outset is exactly what you're making now, that, that and it looks at Lincoln from the time from 1831 to 1842, uh, roughly his time from New Salem and his early years in Springfield. And you say there is this welter of information, as you say, much of it is assembled by his former law partner, William Herndon. Um, but there's a lot of information that is complex, it's incomplete, it's contradictory. So, I mean, as you say, you can either throw up your hands and say, forget it, or just kind of plunge in. And you have a wonderful section where you talk about just how you plow through this kind of evidence and how you use tools like just kind of assessing likelihood and specificity and, you know, who was the person who's telling the story, how would they have known and so forth. So t tell us a little bit about plunging into this world of just, you know, complex, contradictory information and just trying to weigh what was likely, to, what's likely to be true. Um, the, uh, the most famous uh, case that Herndon turned up that nobody else ever knew about and turned up a lot of information about was his uh, romance with uh, Anne Rutledge. But um, people, some people didn't like that story. They didn't like the idea of Lincoln as the, uh, the swain um, who pines over the heroine who dies young and so forth. But that's almost too much like fiction. So they went after that story and uh, the biggest guns in the field decided that they were against it. They thought people were, it was taking up too much of people's attention it was all based on this um, on this information on this uh, uh, on people's memory 
people who who had the best observations were this by this time in their 50s and 60s and Lincoln was a tremendous cultural hero and they wanted to make the most of their but when I read it it didn't sound like that to me it sounded to me like these are people who are trying to answer questions and they frequently said oh gee I don't remember anything about this they weren't trying to invent stuff is what I've got. So I was trying to make a defense of that. The strongest attack on that is was by the leading uh, Lincoln scholar. Um, and he argued that you could use this kind of information, just, just hearsay, what, what legal lawyers call hearsay, um, if you had corroboration. And that corroboration was contemporary with the thing that happened. Well, there isn't any. We don't have any corroborating information about any of this stuff. What we have is what these people remember. So I put together an argument that says um, they set up a, um, a standard that can't be met. There is, we don't have any corroborating evidence. So, but, so I go back and I read what this scholar had written about Lincoln's early life. Oh, he uses all of this stuff. There isn't anything else. Lincoln lived before he had a paper trail. I mean, all of us now have a paper trail. And our descendants will be able to find us and track us, even with minimal census information. We don't have anything like that for Lincoln. When, and when he was young, growing up, the census was marked with like this. How many boys under the age of five? Um, that's all it tells us. Um, well, it tells other things. It tells who, who lived next to whom and so forth sometimes. But um, part, so what I'm trying to say is that part what they couldn't write honors voice without making um, a whole new argument about how we judged that information. And so what I tried to do was to set up a standard and introduce, introduce that in the beginning of the book and say, this is this, these are the things, the, the things that you're talking about. Was this person uh, in a position to know this? Um, is this? Do we have any reason to believe that this isn't what happened, that it was this person? And we have a lot of that stuff, of course, that you would expect. It's people don't remember things or they mix things up. But that's what we would expect. That doesn't discount it. It's, it's the other way around. So. Um, um, I, I had to make the argument that the Lincoln Field had been working with a set of standards that couldn't be met, but they were doing it duplicitously because whenever they wanted to use some of this testimony, they just went ahead and used it. They didn't say, now I can uh, corroborate this with contemporary evidence because we don't have any evidence like that. So um, we, Honor's Voice and the uh, Herndon's informants, the book that has all these things that Herndon collected from people who do Lincoln, appeared at the same time. So um, that was fortunate for me because um, if people didn't believe, they could go and look at and read it for themselves and see and, and all the other stuff. And what we found out was that people were just really um, eager to have this information in one place. Um, there had been a book that purported to 
collect all of this stuff in the 30s. Nobody knew any better, but it was about, uh, we calculated about 15% of what was in the Herndon archive. People had no idea that there was. Now, some people did, um, but they, they had taken on um, the, these other standards about which are impossible to meet. Um, so we had, a, we had an airing of all of this in the 90s. Um, and uh, we, I think we made our point, we, but we, <laughs> doing the work of those, uh, putting that editing, it took us nine years and it was a lot of work. Um, and, uh, but we were always, we were motivated by the fact that we thought we were making a contribution. That was gratifying. Well, Doug, one of the themes that just jumps out of out of you, uh, out of Honor's voice, is just um, you, you talk about the transformation of Lincoln, and the critical thing is just his approach to self education. As you said earlier, you know he did not have material uh, advantages. You know he was not really in an environment that was necessarily conducive to to learning, and yet he plunged in. and And one of the things that I find most striking is just his approach to reading. As you say, it wasn't, you know, the breadth of, a, say, a Jefferson, but it was it was fairly limited. I mean, it was Shakespeare and the Bible and Aesop's fables and a few other things. So limited sources, but still, as you say, some of the richest and most uh, compelling literature in, in world history. So talk about Lincoln's just kind of willing himself to become educated. We have a wonderful account of his the main part of what we know about his education from his stepmother. Her, Lincoln's mother died when he was uh, seven or eight years old. And a few years later, his father remarried. And um, the, that stepwoman survived into Lincoln's uh, uh, presidency. Um, and so Herndon goes to see her and she looks and acts so feeble that he doesn't think he's gonna get anything out of her. And she professes not really to know a lot. She's still very upset about the fact that what she feared and told him when he got elected was that he'd get, he wouldn't survive. Um, and that happened. But finally, she began to describe for Herndon how he educated himself and I won't go into the whole thing, but I think the key thing is that she says, if he uh, saw a word in his reading that he didn't understand, or if somebody said a word, he heard a word that he didn't understand, it, that, uh, that bothered him. And he started worrying that word and started asking questions. And he didn't have a good dictionary. So he, he, had, he just had to wrestle with words and either by using context or by getting somebody who knew the word. But she says he was not happy until he had figured out what that word meant. Well, I think that tells you just worlds about his self-education. It was critical. He was holding a high bar. He wasn't just, well, most of us, when we learn a new word, we try it out, you know, and we use it ourselves. And eventually we get accustomed to it. And maybe somebody will say, well, that doesn't quite mean exactly that. It really means this and you know, get it straightened out. He wouldn't do that. He was unhappy if he couldn't understand a word 
and he made it his business to find out what that word meant. Well, one thing that you, you point out, too, is that, you know, Lincoln was this, you know, this, you know, voracious reader from both, you know, the, the books I mentioned earlier, newspapers, pamphlets, etc. But in some sense, it kind of went against the ethos of the time. In fact, his father thought, you know, he, he, he thought he was lazy, you know, get out and yeah. do physical work, don't sit in a corner reading. And that yeah. became a, a source of just really profound tension between Lincoln and his father that persisted uh, for the rest of, of, you know, their lives. Yes, yes, exactly. And, uh, and it wasn't only his father, all of his neighbors thought that too, and everybody, his world, the world that he lived in, he was not living up to the standards or the expectations of a child. He was, he was doing it his own way, uh, even though his father was, would get after him. Um, his father wasn't interested in him finding out the meaning of these words. He said it's more important to slap the hogs than to find out what that word means. Uh, so he was doing it, but it, there again, it may be that that tension uh, fed in some way Lincoln's need or desire to understand things. Well, I mean, the Lincoln that emerges from Honor's voice is, you know, a, a deeply admirable person, but he's not perfect. And one of the things no. you point out really, really well was Lincoln, uh, particularly as a, you know, in his writing, his journalistic writing, could be pretty darn brutal. In fact, you say he, he, he would use what you called stinging invective and wrote some things that were really deeply hurtful to people. Um, talk about that aspect of Lincoln that we don't often think of. Okay, it, when he, uh, he wants to, he's ambitious. Uh, he's ambitious from the beginning. He wants people, he wants to do something that people will remember him for. He says that early on in his life. Uh, and he's, he thinks politics is an opportunity to do that. So uh, a year after he, less than a year after he got to New Salem uh, as a young man, um, he runs for the legislature. Now. That politics was just bare-knuckle politics. Um, and the debates were not like those in Congress that Daniel Webster was carrying on. These were, you know, <laughs> things that people would fight over. Of course, the same thing was going on in Congress, as uh, Joanne Freeman's wonderful book shows us. They're always fighting. They carry guns. They threaten each other on, all the time in the pre-Civil uh, War Congress. Well, it's the same, only more primitive in the Illinois legislature. And uh, the stories about his campaigning are always talking about, you know, not always, but often talking about the fights in the crowd. That if his, he has the, We have the testimony of a guy who says, I was once getting whipped by some guy in the back of the crowd. And Lincoln saw I was in trouble and he interrupted his speech and said, I've got to get out of the way. I've got to come back here and help my friend. And he grabs the, his opponent and just throws him. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, the guy says he made a lot of friends that way. People like that kind of behavior because uh, he didn't like to see bullying in that kind of He would stand up against it. And he makes it very clear in a few speeches that he's not a guy to be fooled with. I, some, uh, a couple of 
legislators double up and come in, come at him as a team on the floor and try to intimidate him, suggesting that if he doesn't watch his work, they're going to take care of him. And he stands up and he says, I want you to know I'm always ready. In other words, anytime. And, and they back down. Um, and he used that. That was part of his success. But he, of course, wasn't just Musk. He, he had a head and he took um, politics seriously. But he did get started writing early uh, because he was very good at it. And his stuff was, of course, always, um, you know, without it, he didn't sign it or he signed it, you know, pseudonymously. Um, but he was, um, it was the tenor of the time. It wasn't Lincoln. This is what people did. Um, and he was good at it. And so he, he wrote some pretty nasty stuff. <laughs> Luckily for his reputation, most of it, uh, we can't be sure because um, it, he didn't sign it. But there are some things that we know about that are undoubtedly his that are pretty rough and raw and um, unprepossessing. Well, Doug, and actually at one point in your book, you're talking about Lincoln, you say, because Lincoln acquitted himself honorably and even nobly as president does not imply that all actions of his previous life were equal, equally honorable and noble. Just lending credence to the fact that, you know, people have complicated lives and, you know, the Lincoln that, you know, we, we read about now, you know, evolved over time and, 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 and maybe developed some of these honorable traits that were not always in evidence. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think that's one of the things that uh, comes out in uh, Honor's Voice because it's about this period where he is really becoming transformed. Uh, by the time he gets from the time he gets to New Salem to the time he gets married is the period that I take. He gets married because he had proposed to marry uh, Todd then discovered that he really wasn't in love with her. And he discovered this by falling in love with somebody else. She made him known that this was a dishonorable thing that he was doing. And he lived under the shadow of that. I mean, it wasn't, nobody else was holding him to it. He was holding himself to having um, not kept his word to her. And uh, he, we have these letters that he wrote to his friend Speed, where he's, he and Speed were great friends. And then Speed went back to Kentucky and we have these letters that he wrote. Um, and he's, he's obviously very honest and he's earnest. He, he, he's, um, you know, his, he, he's upset with himself. He's troubled. And he, he talks to Speed about these things. So we know um, that uh, he lets us in on it that way, but because, Speed kept the letters, but eventually he decides that the only way he can get out from under this feeling that's self-imposed, that he's behaved dishonorably, is to marry um, Mary, Mary Todd, and he does. And uh, this sort of quiets the, the, the troubling of his mind, and he goes on then with his life. Right. 
Well, Doug, let's talk about uh, Lincoln's Sword, your, your wonderful book on Lincoln's writing. And I want to read a couple sentences and then just have you, uh, have you kind of uh, expand on those. You okay. write, in the four years that Abraham Lincoln would be president, the American people would, would gradually discover, much to its collective astonishment, that this unprepossessing Illinois politician had remarkable abilities as a writer. In that brief period, in the midst of a relentless siege of crises and distractions, he would produce not one or two examples of provocative writing, which, which in itself would be more than most presidents could manage, but a whole series of unmistakably impressive documents. Even though combined to such unpromising formats, formats as ceremonial speeches, messages to Congress, proclamations, and public letters in newspapers, Lincoln's presidential writing proved to be timely, engaging, consistently lucid, compelling in argument, and most important of all, invested with memorable and even inspiring language. Um, let's talk about Lincoln, uh, the importance of writing to his presidency, because as you argue, that, you know, he, he took writing really seriously. This was a central part of his presidency. Yes, and uh, you know, I don't think that he went into the presidency saying anything like, "Well, I'll use my superior writing to uh, enforce public opinion." But he—that's um, what he did. It, it's just, and when I uh, started working on it, I, I started looking around for other people who had written about this, and uh, I couldn't find very, very many people who had. Uh, really made a an attempt to show that his whole presidency he wouldn't he didn't want to make speeches he made I think three or four speeches uh, but he he channeled this stuff into public writing he got criticized for this because no president had ever written newspaper articles that was considered beneath them of course the press didn't have a very good reputation so that was part of it but uh, it's just undeniable that at certain stages he writes things that make the kind of arguments that carries the day. And he did this, um, and I try to that feature those in my in my book. But Horace Greeley, who was the most famous influential newspaper editor of his day, did uh, was against Lincoln's conduct of the war, as were a lot of uh, what we would call liberal people. Most of the liberals were against Lincoln because they thought he didn't know what he was doing. He was slow to move. Um, and they wanted somebody who was more uh, you know, action-oriented. Whereas I think now there's, there's no question that Lincoln had to move slowly. Uh, in fact, Frederick Douglass defends him after saying, even though I was against him, um, I realized that he had to persuade the American people that these things needed to be done. And these moves needed, we need to go in this direction. And you, you can only go so fast. Um, so he, <clears throat> Horace Greeley, toward the end, the way people would respond um, was the way they responded uh, in the 1850s to his speeches. The newspapers that didn't like him, they would just make fun of him and um, say nasty things. Um, and, but they, rather than argue with him, because 
he's he's awfully good at argument. And Greeley says, um, after he writes the Hodges letter, the wonderful letter to the Kentucky contingent that says the line, several good lines, but there's the the all-time classic line, I think, is uh, if slavery is not wrong, nothing is wrong. Uh, and he puts that in a powerful context. And so Greeley, after he reads the Hodges letters, this is in 64, he finally throws in the towel and he says, listen, I'm not gonna, I'm against his being renominated. I'm not in his camp. But you guys who think you can make, can beat him by just uh, making fun of him and denying that he has verbal power, you are, <laughs> you're going to be shown up because that isn't true. And I admit it. Well, Doug, the other point you make is well, really powerful is about just the Lincoln wrote to effectively process the world. At one point you say, there is more than a little to su suggest that writing was often a form of refuge for Lincoln, a place of intellectual retreat from the chaos and confusion of his office, where he could sort through conflicting options and order his thoughts with words. And it seems to me that you argue two things, that writing was a way of one, just kind of sorting through the world and kind of figuring out what he thought, but also secondly, as you're suggesting, then to go to the American people and explain his policies. Yes. Um, yeah, I think, I think that's exactly right. Um, he, it wasn't as though he went into the presidency and say, uh, I'll write my way out of this. It's that things would happen and he would make notes to himself. Uh, one of his most effective public letters I, I talk a lot about the public letters because they moved the needle. You could see it. You could chart his progress. Um, he has a way of putting things, and he works at that. I worked a lot with the manuscripts. The Library of Congress <clears throat> doesn't have the letters that he sent out, but it has the rough drafts that he used. He saved those. So I worked a lot with them to see how he was developing things. But he worked quite a bit on one of his most uh, persuasive uh, letters about um, defending his strong actions that he would take as president, um, um, denying habeas corpus, for example, and other things that even his, uh, his defenders uh, worried about. And he, but he had, he had this idea and he kept working on it until he got it down to one sentence, a sentence that um, really hit hard and was much quoted at the time. <clears throat> he says, must I shoot the poor soldier that falls asleep on guard or who deserts and do nothing to the person who persuades him to desert? Um, and that proved to be a very strong argument because he admits, I am, you know, I, I'm, and he says, even in that speech, I'm assuming that to save the union, to keep the country from being destroyed by insurrection, I'm able to do things that the constitution doesn't tell me I could do because I'm doing it to save the union. I'm not doing it for my own gain or anything. Um, 
<laughs> but he had a way of honing down an argument. So it really was keen and had a cutting edge. Well, Doug, one thing that's, I think is really interesting is you 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 de you describe wonderfully how Lincoln wrote, and there's sort of three phases. I mean, we, writing, of course, we are aware of, but there is a pre-writing phase which you describe, and also is rewriting or revision phase. And talk first a little bit about the pre-writing, the fact that he was constantly accumulating ideas, jotting things down, not really kind of tearing off pieces of paper and throwing it into drawers and coat pockets and hats and other things. But talk about just that piece of him just assembling his thoughts that way. I, co I collected uh, a pretty long list of people close to him, his son, <coughs> his law partner, excuse me, people who were close to him, um, who all said, you know, he had this habit of writing little notes to himself. And, uh, most of those notes don't survive. His, his son had those papers for many years, and he considered it was his job to clean house. And I think he only wanted the most important documents uh, remaining. And I'm sure those notes were in Lincoln's papers when he died and have been disposed of. But there's no denying that he, he used them. And he even said, somebody came in and said, I really... Uh, admired that letter that you wrote about the Conquering, which is about defending himself for his uh, heavy-handed actions as president. Um, and Lincoln says, well, you know, <coughs> when it came time to write that letter, I had it all in here. He pulls the drawer out. He said, I, every little idea I had, uh, I would put, uh, and I put it into this drawer. And when it came time to write that letter, and of course, he, he was waiting for a time. And uh, so this Democratic uh, co um, convention writes a protest and sends it to the White House. And he says, now's the time to use the, all of this stuff I've been saving. Um, so, he, so he had those in the drawer. Now Herndon tells the same story about the House Divided speech uh, that Lincoln gave at the beginning of the campaign against Douglas, uh, but Herndon says he kept all that stuff in his hat. And, which is, he says, and he came in one day and he dumped his hat out. And, um, he, had it, he says he just rearranged the stuff and then he sat down and wrote that speech. Well, Doug, the other point you make is just Lincoln as a rewriter and editor, and he was about as good as they get. I mean, he had this incredible focus on language, on sound, and he could um, he could turn even a pretty articulate thought and then just turn it into you know some of the greatest, most memorable lines in really American literature. Talk about just this kind of relentless revising and editing that he did. Yeah, I, I, I make a, a good deal in the book about his pre-writing, what went into the pieces before he sat down to write them. Uh, and that's part of it, uh, is the collection gathering of the thing. But he also, he's famous for being able, willing to talk to anybody, uh, wives, relatives of the soldiers come in to make a personal protest. He did a lot of listening, uh, you know, and his uh, colleagues would say, 
you're wasting your time just talking to these ordinary folks. We get big problems here to work with. And he says, well, he says, I want to, I learned something from them. And I, you know, I'm, I don't want to know how people feel and what, what their concerns are and so forth. So he, uh, we don't, oh, what I was going to say is, we know about that because there's a lot of testimony about that. And he has the reputation of being this listener, and he was. But what we don't hear about is how he shut himself off and say, I don't want to be bothered for the next four days. He's writing. And he knows it isn't going to be just sit down and write it out. It's going to be work. Um, and I think when they, he wrote, a, a after the firing on uh, Fort Sumter, he, on 4th of July, he presented a, a thing responding to and talking about how he was going to deal with it. Um, and he took two weeks to like write that document. He took off uh, the last part of June almost exclusively to get that thing ready for the 4th of July. Um, so the, the Lincoln who was hidden away and um, absents himself from the, the public and the, and the train of people who are always out there outside of his office trying to talk to him. Um, he, he frequently, when he had an important thing to write, he just closed the door and wouldn't see anybody. Um, so he put an enormous amount of effort uh, into these things. It wasn't that he could sit down and just write something off. Well, one of my favorite, as an Illinoisan, I can say probably one of my favorite Lincoln statements is his farewell address to the people of Springfield. I think all of us as school kids, when you go to the state capitol, you go to the Lincoln statue and you read those astonishing nine sentences of farewell to the, the people of Springfield. And the point you make is that, you know, the actual talk that he gave at the Great Western Railway Station in Springfield was close to that, but not exactly. And that, I guess this shows his rewriting that, that the, the, the version that finally has been immortalized is, you know, is different in small, but really kind of profound respects from what we think he actually said on that occasion. Yeah, I discovered by studying all of the accounts of, that we could find of people who were there and took down what he said. Of course, they're paraphrasing. Um, but you can you can you can kind of get the feeling of what he said. What what he made was a very personal speech. He um, before the speech when he was shaking hands with people, they said they'd never seen him so emotional. He could hardly keep himself together. He was he was shaken. He was a very very emotional, and he got up on the train and he just went into the car. But then he turned around and came back and he took off his hat and all the men in the crowd took off their hats and he started to speak and it was a very personal speech to these people. Here I've lived, you're, you're my friends, you're my citizens and uh, buried my children here and so forth. Um, and they, they, the crowd responded and, he, and the, he just kind of picks up on their response and kind of keeps saying personal things. And finally, he gets to the part where he says, and I hope you will pray for me. And the crowd says, we'll pray, we'll pray. Everybody report, re <coughs> records that. The 
words, the farewell speech we know, he wrote after because the reporters came to him and said, you told us you weren't going to give a speech. And then you made the speech. And so we need you to write it out for us. So the manuscript still exists on the train and you can barely read it because he can hardly, and the, it's hard to read the words and so forth. But in all of that, it's a brilliant speech, but it's a speech for somebody who wasn't there um, because there's no place in that speech where he says, and I hope you'll all pray for me. Not, not, nothing like that. He knows the difference between a speech when you can get up and you've got all these tools at your disposal. You've got your tone of voice. You've got volume. You've got facial expressions. You've got gestures. You can do so much with all that stuff. When you write, you give all that away. And he knew that. And so that speech that we have is written for people who weren't there. Um, and it was written after the fact. And we're lucky to have it because it is so hard to read. In fact, um, when I made it, I worked on that quite a bit. And I finally decided that I, I was going to change the accepted wording. And I discovered that the people who were working on Lincoln's papers had been asked to use that. And they had come to the same conclusion I had about the text. So I felt um, vindicated. But um, it, it's important to realize he wrote that speech. It's his speech. But it isn't what he said um, when he left Springfield. Um, it's, it's a different version of what he said. Well, we could spend a whole hour talking about the Gettysburg Address, but but you also make the point that, you know, he gives this, you know, astonishing speech at Gettysburg and then spends the next four months revising it, tightening it, sharpening it. So the speech that has gone down in history is, again, different than the one that he actually delivered on that battlefield. Yeah, but but much closer. Um, he doesn't um, he doesn't. Uh, change it as much but it's the problem is in that <laughs> you know when you get into certain subjects that we don't have the delivery text uh, we have a draft two different kinds of paper written on two different occasions obviously they don't even match so it used to be something that went in between and some people argue nonetheless that is the delivery speech he got up and he spoke having written that. And if it doesn't match, he, it improvises. He's improvising. I can't accept that. I think since the reporter says that he asked Lincoln for a copy of the speech so he could copy it off, and then he copied it off, and this is what he sent by telegraph to all the papers, I think that uh, we don't have that document. So, But there's tremendous arguments about over what these very things mean. Because the speech is so good. Um, the uh, Charles Sumner, the great senator from Massachusetts, the leader of the liberals really, and who made a lot of trouble for Lincoln, even though they had a kind of a friendship, he said, he was a very learned man. He, he knew the language, languages, he knew history. 
and he said, and and, and he he's the guy who said when he 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 thought they ought to go down when they won the war and hang all these Confederate generals and stuff. You know, there were a lot of people who thought that way. Lincoln was totally against that. He thought we said just let's go home and rebuild the country and let's not keep up this fight. Let's not be recriminating. Let's just do it. Um, anyway, Sumner said, I've read all the great speeches of the world, but history is left to us. And he says, it is better than all of those speeches, the Gettysburg Address. And he says, and for, for uh, moreover, it will live when the battle itself will be forgotten or only remembered because of the speech. It's a pretty strong endorsement um, from a strange but interesting source. Right. Doug, we've had some great questions emailed in. I'd like to read a couple of them and, and get your reaction. The first okay. uh, comes from Mark in Vancouver, Washington, who, who says, Lincoln condemned slavery as morally wrong, but said he would not seek to end it where it existed, only restrict it from spreading to new territories and states. Nevertheless, the Southern states felt his election was a dire threat to their peculiar institution, their way of life. Had the Civil War not dra dramatically altered the situation, what do you think Lincoln would have actually done about slavery as president and what do you make of the South's reaction to his election? Yes, uh, Lincoln was a moderate. Uh, he was uh, he was a radical in his belief about the wrongness of slavery, and that you couldn't have slavery in a democracy, so you had to work to get rid of it. But it, there, are, it's harder. He's not so. Um, he, he doesn't want to throw away the the baby with the bathwater. He wants to keep the government, keep the democratic form and work to get rid of slavery incrementally. And uh, so he says in the first inaugural, I, I'm not gonna touch slavery. Uh, you think that I'm, what, I'm at, what my party says is we don't want slavery in the territories, but we are, I, I'm not gonna inter interfere with slavery in the states. That isn't my purpose. So, of course, people who are um, abolitionists, uh, like Douglas, Frederick Douglass, uh, they're not satisfied with that. They, they think he should be making a war to get rid of slavery, which he ends up doing. Um, but he ends up having a political solution. He persuades the Northern people that this is an insurrection and they should put it down. And when with, they had trouble, he, he then issues the Emancipation Proclamation, which enables him to take a couple hundred thousand black soldiers and put them on the field. Uh, and you could argue they make the difference. I, and I think Lincoln thought that himself. We have a well, question. He, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, that's all right. I'm just saying he, he isn't, as he was uh, uh, urged by a number of people, including Sumner, as soon as he was elected, he said, okay, now you've got the power to end slavery, just get rid of it. And he said, no, that isn't what I told him. I didn't run on that basis. I wouldn't do that. And I don't think it'll work. 
making things work is what he was interested in doing. Right. We have a question from Lyndon from Cobden, Illinois. This is a more kind of parochial question. She says, she'd be interested in any comments you have about the Lincoln-Douglas debate in Jonesboro. I know you've spent a probably, you're an expert in the Lincoln-Douglas debate. Of course, Galesburg and Knox College has one of the, uh, you know, the, one of the great uh, kind of places to, to look at uh, where the debate occurred. How does history think of the Jonesboro uh, debate? I think it was um, not very uh, highly regarded by anybody. They knew they had to go down into Southern Illinois um, where nobody would vote for Lincoln. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they would have this disadvantage. And what they ended up doing was taking a, a, a very undistinguished town on the river pretty far south. Uh, and that's about the best they could do. And um, since everybody was reading those things in the paper, um, it wasn't as though nobody else was going to find out what was down there. So uh, Lincoln, uh, I mean, you know, boxers, when they get in there, they don't just throw punches. They sometimes act on the defense. He was playing defense down in Jonesboro. And he says, well, I, my people were born not very far from here. Sounds good. We have a question from William and Carbondale who tries to connect Lincoln to or ask about Lincoln in term in, in the context of current events, saying, in terms of, of healing the polarized elements of our society today, what do you consider the most important lessons that we can draw from Abraham Lincoln's life? Uh, yeah, I think the public picture of Lincoln is simplified. So this is, for me, problematical. Um, as I say, he believed in making things work. He wasn't, he wasn't for doing something that just says uh, to the South, um, screw you. He wouldn't do that. He, he wanted to get rid of slavery sort of legitimately uh, by pushing it out and saying it has no place in a democracy, which is what he believed. Um, and, and he didn't have the fervor of the people that said, <laughs> like uh, Garrison, William Lord Garrison, who burned the constitution. Uh, Lincoln, farthest thing from his mind was, would be something like that. So uh, I think he wanted to do things that would work, things that would uh, you would uh, that would be lasting, um, that would uh, revert back, and so forth. Um, so it's I, th I think you have to get a little bit further into Lincoln than the kind of cliched picture that we have of him, um, and get a sense of the man and what he believed. And you have to be willing to accept that um, political progress is something that's worth working for, even though it doesn't give you all you want or what you think you have a right to expect. But if it's the best you can do is work in the right direction. 
Well, Doug, tell us a little bit about the Lincoln Study Center at Knox, and particularly, a little, I mean, you're, I think this is your 25th anniversary year, a little bit about how it started and what contribution you're trying to make to the world of Lincoln Studies. Well, uh, when I discovered that I was changing horses in the middle of the stream and shifting from Jefferson to Lincoln, I roped in my <coughs> teaching and research partner. Um, he's and I think we couldn't have done that um, that project uh, as well without him. Um, he was tremendously uh, important. But what we did was we had this thing started about five years before we, we both retired. And um, I spent my last four years uh, down in Monticello, but we were working together. We'd already started this project and we went to the dean and we told him that we were doing this project and it was going to be a lot of work and we we would when we we could make this a retirement project and um, that it might make some sense for the college because it's proud of its Lincoln associations to just have a, a space there and we could call ourselves the Lincoln Study Center and um, we would work not for a, a fee but just a place to work and and the wherewithal, you know, student help and telephones and computers. And, and they were very encouraging. Uh, they they liked that. And so that's what happened when we, uh, I came back from Charlottesville and Rodney retired. We set up shop uh, up in Old Main. And um, we, uh, we only, we, we only spent money on one thing. And that was, we wanted to bring in a panel of Lincoln experts to be our board of advisors, which is simply to give us good ideas, give us good criticism and show the world or anybody interested that we took ourselves seriously. This wasn't just uh, our indulgence or our whims, but it had standing. And uh, we were very fortunate in that. Most of the Lincoln scholars that were at the top of the, the top tier when we were working, appeared on our board, of, took a turn on our board of advisors. And uh, what's happened is that we have finished most of the work we wanted. We only have one book left in the series that we published. It's almost all done. Um, uh, it, we, we managed to publish uh, a couple of other books on Lincoln, important books on Lincoln, Lincoln related. Um, in our series, the University of Illinois Press gave us our own series. Um, and there's only one more book that's gonna be going into that series. And that's the one that we're working on now, which is Herndon's um, lectures on Lincoln and other writings. And when that goes to bed, we will have had our last hurrah. Uh, the, College uh, thought about um, having making the Lincoln Studies Center permanent, but when we looked into it, you you couldn't do it by not paying a couple of people the way we were doing it uh, and using just student help, and so that we weren't a drag on the college's funds. Uh, you, it would be a substantial um, fee and. If you raise money for that, you have to raise it in competition to what 
your other needs are. And um, so eventually I think it was, it simply was that we would finish our, our work if, <laughs> if we were able to live long enough. And that would be it. It would be a temporary thing. And we understood that from the beginning. Well, Doug, I'm going to ask you oh, that. I'll, I'll, I'll give you one more thing. Um, and maybe some of your uh, listeners know this, but we did, we took to calling it a failed retirement project. <laughs> Meaning we, when we, when we were teaching, we always came in at nine o'clock every day and go home at five. That, that isn't the way people do it now, but we went back to that. And so for a number of years, we were back on a nine to five schedule at the college. We'd always eat at the, at the college and so forth. Um, so uh, it was a retirement project um, that worked out very well for us. And I think for Lincoln Scholarship um, because of the things that, that appeared, we were able to put out. Well, for students and even just, you know, other lay people who say, you know, they, they want to know more about Lincoln. If, if you were to recommend a couple like one volumes, and I guess, you know, the sort of going price for Lincoln books is eight or 900 pages. But, you know, if you were to let, you know, even a book of that size, but one volume, where would you urge students or interested lay people to start to get both a rigorous but also readable uh, account of Lincoln's life? There are a lot of biographies of Lincoln and uh, I, and the, there are a number of them have have great strengths. Um, but readability is, as you say, important for the general reader. And uh, so I still think uh, ben Tom Benjamin Thomas, who wrote a book in the 50s, is a very good, readable, reliable um, biography. But it's now 50 years old or, or more. Um, of the current biographies, I think uh, David Donalds is very good and again, authoritative, um, great scholar. Um, Michael Burlingame has a two, if you're, you want more detail, um, Michael Burlingame has a huge two volume uh, work that's um, it would be a, a lot, a, a lot of reading, but there's a lot of information in it too. If you're interested in more in the details of his life, uh, it's very recommendable. Well, Doug, let me ask you finally. I mean, I, you, you know, you've lived in the world of Jefferson and, and Lincoln, and in your book, you write somewhat tantalizingly. You say Thomas Jefferson was the only president whose writing ability rivaled Lincoln. This would be a whole course, but in just kind of broad terms, how would you do, how would you compare the writing uh, of a Jefferson and Lincoln? And I, the thing I've always wondered: Would Jefferson have been able to appreciate Lincoln's writing? I mean, there, there was a whole different style in the next half century or so. But talk about the two these two great writer presidents and how they how they compare, and, and whether um, Jefferson might have been able to appreciate Lincoln. Yeah, I think he would. Um... Jefferson had a great sense for what was well done. I mean, and whether it's architecture or, or uh, prose, or uh, he had an ability that you can recognize uh, 
in his writing, the, the kinds of turn of phrase that um, he could do, um, which is just marvelous. Uh, Lincoln, I think, uh, especially Lincoln's a great writer whose state papers should be um, so contextualized that you they wouldn't be good reading for somebody who didn't know the context. But people read him and in these contextualized situations, and most of everything he wrote was that way. Uh, so he's, his, his writing uh, transcends the context. Um, and people agree, this is really impressive writing. It would be impressive if somebody could write that way today. It would look a little strange because you can tell that Link, a Jefferson's 18th century man, you can tell that Lincoln um, is a 19th century person. Uh, but at any rate, American writing has moved in a direction that you can see if you chart uh, Jefferson, who's formal. Lincoln has a kind of friendly formality. And then by the time you get to the 20th century, um, formality isn't always appreciated. Um, people want something a little more friendly. Um, this is the direction of American prose. Uh, but um, these are big generalities and it's, um, I, and I, I think it depends, people, some people just don't like the 18th century because it had, it's too much work to contextualize and um, they like contemporary reading because they're living in the same culture. They don't have to be, they don't have to go out and learn of the, what the culture was like as you do when you study the past. Well, final question. If this is an impossible one, but had Lincoln lived, what kind of uh, post-presidential memoir do you think it would, he would have written? I'm, I'm thinking, you know, his contemporary Grant wrote, you know, a memoir that is oftentimes cited as just, you know, a very powerful and impressive book. You know, do you have, even, have you ever thought about just what kind of memoir Lincoln might have, have tried to assemble or whether he would have? Yeah, I, I would wonder. Uh, since it's all speculative, whether he would really uh, write, he was a very private guy, you know, um, whether he would really want to write a whole book about himself. Um, I think he wouldn't be comfortable doing that, uh, just judging by his, his example that we have. Um, in fact, his closest friends uh, would when they were asked that question or about uh, Lincoln, uh, they would say he is, what did Herndon say, the most shut mouth man that ever lived. And even um, uh, people that he was close to, his political associates, um, say, I didn't really know him. I don't think anybody really knows him. He was too private. Autobiography doesn't sound like it would be what he would do. Of course, Grant would probably say the thing, same thing because he did that because he had lost his fortune and he needed some money for his, he's dying and he needs some money for his family. Right. 
Very interesting. Well, Doug, thank you so much for this wonderful uh, description of, of Lincoln and on President's Day and, um, and Jefferson as well. And, and again, I would urge to all the people who've been watching to, to, to spend some time reading Doug's books. Both Honor's Voice and Lincoln's Sword are really marvelous books. Um, I've read some of his essays on Herndon. I'd love to, to, to read more because he was a really integral person in Lincoln's life. So, so Doug, thank you so much. I look forward to seeing you again, maybe in, in Galesburg or Carbondale, Great. if we can lure you down here. But thank you so much. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Simon Cast, the official podcast of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at Southern Illinois University. Simon Cass is produced in collaboration with WSIU Public Radio. You can find Simon Cass wherever you listen to podcasts, including NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. Please subscribe to new episodes as soon as they're posted and tell your friends about our show. For more information, visit paulsimoninstitute.org. Thank you for listening and thank you for keeping the legacy of Paul Simon alive and well.